0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, um, I thank you for lining up a a what I think should be a very interesting guest.
2: Yeah, you know it's funny you see things through a different prism now as when you become a parent. And I think the story that happened in college football last we kind of resonated with us maybe in a different way than it would have a couple of years ago.
1: And you're talking, of course, about Gene Chizik, uh, the former Auburn head coach, who's been North Carolina's defensive coordinator the past two seasons stepping down to spend more time with his family that's something that I feel like when you've heard that about somebody say that in the past it would get mocked or or you just wouldn't believe it and or they'd say that and they'd be right back to work but as you're going to hear in this interview no this really is about him you know looking at the bigger picture realizing that he doesn't his family's back in Auburn he doesn't want to continue this when his son's about to start high school and so he is leaving coaching and so um, we have a very interesting conversation. It gets a little bit deeper than your typical podcast interview with a college football coach, so I hope you enjoy it.
2: All right, and Stu,
1: we are pleased to be joined by
2: our guest today, Gene Chizik. He is, as we reported last week, stepping down as the defensive coordinator at North Carolina and had a pretty good reason for it, and we're going to get into that now. Coach, thanks for joining us on The Audible today. Hey, guys. Glad to be here with you, and uh, it's a beautiful day out, and I just appreciate you having me on. All right, so let's, let's start with this. I think for some people it was a little bit of a surprise. You guys have, you know, you've been there a couple of years and you had, you know, made a big difference with the defense. Uh, but when people found out the reasoning, just basically to, to go back home, your family had still been living in, in Auburn where you had coached before, and to, not to reconnect with them, but just to get a chance to be, be more a part of their lives. How much had this been weighing on you since you've been up in Chapel Hill?
3: Well, you know, guys, I've been, I've been coaching
2: for 30 years
3: and this is the first time this has ever been the case. So, you know, we've never been separated to any degree and, you know, it was really tough. And and one of the things that I promised my, my kids, when we moved to Auburn the second time and I became the head coach, I told them that this would be the last move that they, that they would make because growing up and me kind of working my way up through the ranks, it was really funny because my children could always tell you where they were born. They couldn't tell you where they were from. And so when we moved to Auburn, I said, look, guys, you're going to be able to say I'm from Auburn. That's where I'm from. That's where I was raised. And I, and I held true to that guys. And, and when I took, you know, when I took this job at Carolina, it was really difficult. We made a family decision together um, that I was going to let my girls finish out high school uh, let my boy uh, finish out high school, and we would do the best we could in terms of commuting. So we did that for two years. Uh, we didn't know what that would look like or feel like, and it worked. We made it work just because that's that's what you have to do. But at the end of the day, uh, this decision was made because it was really hard for me to come to grips with my boy being in high school for four years and me not being a part of his life and being you know a part of his baseball games and and his football games and things of that nature. So it was extremely tough. This is a phenomenal situation here at UNC. I've really enjoyed my two years here, there's no question. Uh, but as I said, kind of in my letter that I wrote to, to the faculty and to the people here at UNC, <clears throat> it's a special place. But in my life, uh, my family's always going to come first. So it just was a really, really tough decision to step
1: away from it but I know it was the right one for sure. Gene, you said you guys made it work for two years. How do you do that? Like, you know, we think of college football coaching to be a pretty um, all-consuming job where you're working all year and you're working really long hours. You know, did they, did your family end up coming to Chapel Hill a lot? Were you able to get, you know, how often, if any, were you able to get back to Auburn?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, part of the difficulty, guys, came that during football season, obviously you are so so consumed, there was no chance for me to get home. But they did the best they could on the weekends and games coming up here. Um, in the off season, the way we made it work was that, you know, Larry was really great about usually around midday on Fridays. Um, you know, I would take off and, and I'd fly home. And I'd fly back to Auburn and I'd be able to pretty much spend the whole weekend, you know, basically two and a half days there. And be back to work on a Monday morning. So, but, you know, that got cut into a lot when you have recruiting weekends and things of that nature, too. So, you know, we made it work. Uh, Larry Fedora was awesome. He was outstanding about giving me some flexibility. You know, he knew I was going to do my job, and, you know, there was no question about that. I was never going to cut any corners. But pretty much every waking moment where I wasn't going to be consumed with either game planning, spring practice, you know, or the season, I was home or they were here. So, you know, we made it work both ways. They would come here. I would go home, um, you know, just whatever part of the calendar allowed us to to do either one. That's what we did. And again, um, you know, it wasn't the <laughs> it wasn't the the, you know, the best scenario in terms of us being around each other. You know, as I said in my letter, I've seen my boy play two baseball games and two football games in two years. Um, so, when you need to be there for a lot of special events, that's when it became really, really difficult. So, you know, I just felt like, hey, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is. You gotta, you got to talk the talk and walk the walk. And so, although it was an extremely difficult scenario to come to grips with, because this football has been a part of my life since I was eight, uh, and stepping away from it <clears throat> certainly was a uh, was kind of a challenging decision. But again, you know, family's always going to come first. My kids are always going to come first.
2: So we all came to grips with it and we're all good with it. And uh, we'll just move forward and see what, see what happens next. Hey Gene, Stu and I are both young parents. We have, we have kids that are that are small and so we're really in the just figuring it out stage. But I'm curious, you know, we both, tra- you know, travel and I was away, you know, my son is, is young enough where he's just starting, you know, soccer. He's two and he's out there. And I, you know, there's Sundays where I'm away because I'm traveling home from college football games. And there's a level of guilt from you know, that you kind of process and everything. How much now that the decision is made and it's, you know, you're able to to move forward? Is there a sense of relief? You're at a place, obviously financially, where you know that's not as much of a concern, I would imagine. But it's a is there a feeling, I don't want to say of unburdened, but do you feel now uh, uh, just this sense of relief that, you know, you can kind of do something that maybe you've, in the back of your head, you always wondered if you'd have the chance to do it or, you know, and, and how will you fill that void of not coaching and having that grind of the job now and you'll be home all that time around your, around your wife and around your, your family now?
3: Well, to me, those are all really good questions. Some of I, some, I know the answer to some, I don't, um, you know, Bruce, it's going to be really interesting because um, to answer your question about, do you feel like there's a little bit less, you know, a little bit less on your plate, a little bit of a, you know, kind of a, just a take a deep breath and relax feeling. Yes, there's absolutely that. I haven't thought about a recruit in four days. I haven't thought about spring practice installation in four days. Um, and so in that regard, yes, there, there's definitely been some sense of relief on the other hand there. It's it's interesting because I don't know what, what is next for me. Um, you know, I did some TV while I was out, you know, in the two years after the Auburn uh, situation. And, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it really kept me engaged in football and, Which is again my passion and what I love. That's a hopefully a possibility at some point down the road if I want to go down that path. Um, You know, I'm going to be a full-time dad. That's you know I sit here and I look at the energy and the passion and the focus and the time that I have put into trying to be a great football coach. I'm literally going to take that, and I've made that commitment to myself and to my son and my daughters and my wife. I am going to literally channel all that energy into them, and and I want to be the best, you know, whether that's me working the concession stand at baseball games and cooking hamburgers or just being there when he looks out and sees that his dad's at his games. And um, I'm going to do that full time, and I'm going to do it the best I can do it. And, you know, I, I just want to be present. And I I don't want to be, you know, uh, a long distance bad. I just, that's not what I want to do. And and you know what? Two years from now, when my son graduates high school, you know, maybe it it goes down a different road. Maybe it doesn't. Um, My wife and I will do a lot of traveling. Um, But, you know, guys, I will say this. You know, you guys talk about being young guys and trying to figure it out. I'm not sure you ever figure it out because I'm not sure that, you know, as, as men, we all try to provide, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be providers for our family, for our wife and our children and, and things of that nature. And just when you work hard, because you guys want to be the best at what you do. I wanted to be the best at what I did. You know, you're always going to have that level of, man, am I doing the right thing? Am I putting too much time into it? You know, I don't know that you ever really figured it out. I've been doing it for 30 years. And I always ask those same questions. But I think what, where, where the answer really comes into, to much clarity, I guess, is when you know your heart is right, when you know that you're doing everything you can in those waking moments. Hey, you're going to have waking moments right now where you've got three hours off. Don't go play golf. Go be with your kids, you know, and, and I tell young coaches that all the time. You know, you've got to do what you got to do to put the food on your table to be great at your craft. But that's not 24 seven. There's windows in there where you have opportunities. Don't go blow those opportunities. Make sure your heart's right and you go put them where, you know, do the things that that's right, and that is be with your family whenever you can and, and be present whenever you can. And don't go home and pick up the clicker and sit down in front of the TV and not pay attention to anybody. You're home, but you're not home. So, you know, those are the things that I always tell young coaches. And, you know, I had a guy tell me a long time ago, he was in the coaching profession. He became a head coach when he was 29. He said, Gene, I regret it because one day my wife pulled out a picture of Halloween. And I looked at that picture and I said, Who is that? And, and, you know, my wife said to me, That's your daughter. And he said, I've always regretted that. So that was a story that stuck with me from one time I was a young guy in my 30s and the guy that told me that. And I've tried to, you know, I've tried to live by that the best I, the best I can.
1: So I think anybody, Outside of football, who's listening to this right now would just feel nothing but respect and admiration for the decision you've had to make and how difficult that must be. But I'm curious the reaction you've gotten from uh, since this news came out from other people in the coaching world in the industry, because, like you said earlier, Gene, n- you know, men are expected to be the provider. That's kind of the cultural norm. But, in, but more specifically in football. Uh, you know, what I hear all the time is when when you ask a coach, hey, are you going to, you know, when are you going to retire? Or when are you going to, oh, I, I can't, I would never do that because I can't, you know, this is all I know. This is all I know is coaching. And you're expressing like a very refreshing um, view of life that extends beyond football. As you hear from your colleagues and friends, are they supportive? Are they confused? What is the reaction? <laughs> it's been really interesting. The guys that I'm closest with have literally
3: called me or texted me and said, I can't wait till I'm in a position to make the same decision. And then of course there's people out there that, you know, they're pretty, you know, they were, they were pretty shocked by it and things of that nature. But, um, you know, I try to tell people all the time, guys, you know, that there's a huge distinction between who you are and what you do. And I, I spoke to the team the other night, the team meeting, and I wanted to address them and tell them why, you know, I, w- I was not going to be at North Carolina next year. And I said, guys, you know, I said, I want you to understand this about me. And you've been around me two years and probably have figured it out. But coaching football is what I do. It's, it's not who I am. You know, I said I'm a husband and a father. Um, and look, there's nobody out there that's going to be more competitive. There's nobody. That, you know, in this profession where football is more important to them than it is to me, there was nobody that was out there that was wanting to be better at what they did than me. Nobody. There's people that want to be as good, but there's nobody that was better. But at some point you draw the line between what you do and who you are. And I know who I am, you know, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I I brought three children in this world. And my wife and I's job is to make sure that when they leave the house, that we can put our head on a pillow at night and feel good about the direction we're sending them. And this was a decision that was based merely on that. Football coaching is what I do. If I want to get back into it two years from now, I can get back in. But at this particular time, there was no question what I needed to do for me to never, ever look back on anything and have any regrets. And, You know, yes, financially, I'm in a scenario where I'm able to step away and do this. You know, money doesn't make you happy, it just gives you options. And that's, you know, what it's done for me. So, um, again, keeping the things that I know are the most important that I've said are the most important my whole life, it was time to walk the walk and do it. So, some people are going to look on it and have whatever opinion they want. That's that's fine. But the people that are closest to me and the people that I know are Gene Chizik people uh, have all been absolutely outstanding, including Larry Fedora, uh,
2: Bubba Cunningham, and the people that matter here too. Hey, Gene, I'm I'm curious. Just you you won a national title at Auburn, but also way before that. I mean, you were a hot defensive coordinator. You won the Broyles Award. I don't remember if it was at Texas or Auburn, but I remember, you know, and you had success at both places running defenses. You didn't need to be a defensive coordinator the last few years. Obviously, you helped Larry and, and got made things better there, but any part of you regret that you didn't do this sooner? Um,
3: no, not really. Not really, Bruce. You know, I love the game. Um, I love the game so much that... I wasn't ready to say this This was it. I wasn't even ready to it, – I'd it, flirted with it. I'd certainly flirted with it. Um, you're right. I mean, I'm not coaching because I'm trying to accomplish anything. I'm coaching because I love it, and I love the impact. I love the challenge. I love the grind. I love to work. That's just the way it is, and I've told my wife that. She knows that. I love to work, guys. And not only that, I love to have goals set and try to achieve those goals. And that's just part of my makeup. Um, But I'm not doing this so I can go and win another championship. Obviously, wherever I go, that's what I want to do. That's the goal I set at that moment. But my life goal is not to go and win, you know, another third national championship. I've already been, you know, one or two. Um, So everything that I did... Was because I love this game. I love being the kids. I love mentoring. I love coaching them. I love doing all of those things. I flirted with the idea of just staying in TV and, and going down that path. Um, but there was something that I felt like I had to get back and, and get into this grind, you know, one more time. And, and, you know, I did it. And like I said, I have absolutely zero regrets. Uh, everything that I did was well calculated out and, um, you know i had a phenomenal two years
1: but again you know it's it's time to change gears and, and go down a different road right now as long as we're talking about uh family and the impact on family i'm just curious gene you mentioned earlier i mean your family's still living in auburn and you kind of referred to the end end of your era that your tenure there is the situation at auburn you know people don't under i don't think people really fans in general know um when there's a coaching change, how that impacts somebody's family. And you got, you won a national championship. I'm sure you were the toast of Auburn at the time. My recollection of that last season is that it was very, just a lot of negativity there. Um, What was that like for your kids and your family when that was basically three or four months of, I assume, they're not hearing very uh, kind things about their father?
3: (laughs) Yeah, that would be a very diplomatic way (laughs) to
1: put it for sure.
3: (laughs) At least. Um, you know, what's really tough for a coach guys is that we sign up for it. Um, and we know what comes with it. It doesn't mean that it's fun and it doesn't mean that, you know, that you're going to like it, but you just know that that's kind of comes with the territory. That's where it becomes very conflicting as a father. Um, when your kids are really subjected to, you know, some, some things that potentially can happen in this profession. And you stay in this long enough, sooner or later, it's going to happen to just about everybody. I mean, just go down the list, Mack Brown, Bobby Bowden. I mean, you can go down the list. And it's really sad that the kids have to, you know, endure this because they didn't sign up for it. And that's what really, really is conflicting and tough. And my number one goal that whole season in 2012, when things started to go south was protect my family, protect my family to the point where I even went to their schools. And I said, and I met with the administrators and said, I want you to absolutely keep your, you know, keep your eyes out um, for not just my kids, but every kids that is in this school whose father works over here at Auburn for me. And I, I went there and I, I I had a meeting with them and I told them that is absolutely not going to be tolerated. So please keep your and they were phenomenal about it, but they don't sign up for that, and that's what becomes really really tough. Now two years old, you know, two years earlier they're the talk of the town and the coast of the town, right? But we understand that's how football works. A nine year old or a thirteen year old, they don't understand that. And it's really, really difficult. But I'll tell you what, my, my kids, um, like most, are extremely resilient. They surrounded themselves and cocooned themselves in with their true, true friends who were just great, great, you know. Um, friends and comrades of my kids. And that's who, you know, that's who they clung to and we weathered the storm and they're as happy as they've ever been. Um, They're so glad we stayed uh, to the point where my own daughters, my twin daughters are, you know, they're freshmen at Auburn right now. So, um, you know, it's, it's tough sledding at times. Uh, It's, it's an incredible life style. Um, it's really always interesting and always fluid and moving, but, um, but that's part of the, that's part of the game that really is, uh, is kind of a shame, but it comes with the territory and your kids learn to deal with it. And my kids have, have really become better for it, I guess you could
2: say. Yeah. When you're talking about that, I'm thinking of conversations I've had with the kids of, uh, coaches I know sometimes, and it's, pretty sobering because it's people are cynical and they'll be like, oh, oh, well, so-and-so coach makes, you know, X million dollars a year as if because of that, you know, everything else is like, you know, should roll off the kids' backs and everything's back, You know, just I don't know. I, I, just hearing it kind of I can only imagine what that would be like, especially when you're in a small town and we're football. Well,
3: yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right. And I'll tell you what what really becomes frustrating says that's exactly you just hit it on the head. Because you make X amount of money, and I don't know where the cutoff is, but you know what I mean? Because you make X amount of money, then you should be able to deal with it. That's what you get. That's what you get with it. Well, your kid ain't making a dime. Your 13-year-old isn't seeing any of that money. You know what I mean? And they're the ones that are taking the brunt of it. But it's funny because you're right. People are very cynical about that. And, of course, the first thing out of their mouth is, Well, you know, so-and-so makes this, you know, this much money. So, you know what, that comes with the territory, too bad. And his kids, too. And unfortunately, those are adults saying that, and it trickles down from them to their child in the home, and then they carry that to school. That's how it works. And, you know, it's unfortunate, uh, but like I said, my kids and I grew so close and so um, just an unbelievable bond because we literally, at young ages, had to constantly have these conversations. And it wasn't just when I got to Auburn. Um, we've been having those conversations since these guys were five and six years old. And, you know, I just think, you know, now they're 19 and, you know, two of them are 19 and one of them 16. They've been to these conversations. They've become a little more worldly because of it. And I really feel like that's going to really provide them with, you know, a great sense of big picture, you know, in life. And they, they, they get it. They understand it. And, you know, at the time it's hard, but I think that they'll gain a lot of value out of that um, because they had to go through it and they understand it.
1: Well, coach, while we have you on here, we wanted to hopefully get, pick your brain a little bit and get your expertise on some, the the NFL draft is coming up and you just uh, spent two years practicing against a guy in Mitch Trubisky who is now being talked about as possibly the top quarterback in the draft. And frankly, people that don't follow college football that closely probably never heard of him before this season. So um, tell us why, you know, what What was your observations, uh, you know, seeing him up close like that and how he was able to make this ascension?
3: Well, it's really interesting. You know, if you just go back a year ago, guys, no one knew who Mitch was and, uh, you know, he's a guy that we, uh, you know, when I first came here, I was watching him throw every day in practice. And I was going, Holy cow. You know, this kid reminds me at the time, what he reminded me of my first year here was kind of a Colt McCoy, a college Colt McCoy, very accurate, very fluid in the pocket. I mean, just um, really, you know, had a great sense of the game, um, but he wasn't playing much because we had Mark Bruce Williams. So once you know, Mitch kind of got his feet, you know, kind of got his cleats in the ground and really started gaining a lot of reps in spring practice last year. Some of the throws he was making and some of the things he was doing, I was going, wow, wow, this this guy really has a chance to be special. Well, you never know what they're going to do when they're the starting quarterback because there's a whole big difference between a guy that comes in a few times a year and relieves or, you know, has a good showing just in, you know, and we've seen that with quarterbacks. They go in and they play for a quarter here or play for a quarter there. You know, they look like Superman. And all of a sudden, when they get the job, you know, it's a whole different deal with the pressure and all the things that we know come with it. This guy never flinched. It was amazing. From our first game on, I thought Mitch was – at he did everything that he did in practice. He was accurate. Uh, he had, you know, a real quick release on the ball. His decision-making was great. And see, in football, everything comes down to the quarterback position in terms of how fast can these guys make a decision and release the ball. That's what it is. Now, obviously, you have to have some arm strength and accuracy. We get that. But you can have accuracy and you can have arm strength. But if you aren't a decision-maker that can have a quick release and get the ball out, it won't matter because the balls are going to get knocked down or picked off. So he kind of had a combination of all those things. He was a really, really uh, talented guy, but he was really smart. He had a very foot- very high football IQ to pick all this stuff up really quick, had the quick release, had the great decision-making, and was extremely accurate. And when he got into the games, it was just like practice form. And so as the games unfolded, I, you know, I saw a guy grow into – a definite NFL draft pick. And then of course, as we started getting closer to the end of the year, you know, his stock started rising. So um, I think he's going to be a tremendous uh, NFL quarterback. You know, I think the thing that will be challenging for him to a degree is that he's only played one year of college football. And if you go back and track all the quarterbacks that have literally only played one year in college football, you know, Cam Newton's probably one of the few that have come in and, and been able to, after one year of college, been able to be that productive in the NFL. So he'll have his challenges for sure, but he's a quick learner. Uh he's got great football IQ and, and again, I just think he's a really talented
2: player. Coach, you ended up on our podcast where Stu and I have argued a little bit. Uh, my feeling is it's a clear number one of the by far the greatest player. That has played in college football since I've covered the sport. This is
1: not going to be an objective opinion here. (laughs) I I I see
2: where it's going, guys. Right. I got it. All right. So (laughs) to me, he's clear you know, you basically coach the closest thing we're going to see to Superman in college football, but. You also last year co- uh, coached against a guy who did some remarkable things and left Clemson with a national title. I'm not asking you to compare because Cam's 6'6", six, six, Deshaun is 6'2". There, there are lots of differences. But in terms of what they meant to the program, you got to see what Clemson did. Uh, what impressed you the most about about Deshaun Watson You know, after not just – Preparing for him and playing him, but you know you're in the ACC to see what what that program has done and and what he what he led them to.
3: Well, first of all, I think that he has brought the he uh, obviously surrounded by a, a lot of other very good players, but he's the marquee guy, so we can spend it however we want to. Deshaun Watson's name is tagged with the Clemson Tiger paw. That's just the way it is, and he has brought the brand back. He really, really has, and. You know, they had Taj Boyd before him, who was really, um, and we played against him as well, and he was really, really good in his own right. But this guy's a difference maker. This guy, um, first of all, he is the most competitive. That was Cam's edge. That was always Cam's edge. He was so competitive. And I see the exact same thing in Deshaun Watson. He is just such a competitive guy. I mean, when we played him, I was watching him in pregame warm-up, and I saw this kind of wiry guy, 6'2", 6'3", physically just having to walk out there and really wow you like a Cam would. You know, Cam goes out there and looks better than any defensive end on an NFL team right now. That's what he looks like when he walks out. Deshaun wasn't necessarily that. Um, but what he was, when that, when that ball kicked off, he was a fierce competitor. He was tough as boots, wiry. Uh, I thought he made some really, really great tight window throws, but he was tough. If they had to run him 25 times to win the game, he could do it. If he had to make the tight, tight throws uh, in tight coverages, he could do it. If he had to escape and get out of trouble and throw on the run and extend plays, he could do it. He's got it all. And, we, you know, as, as we talk about in quarterbacks all the time, He's got the intangibles you can't teach. He's just got it when he steps into the huddle, you know. When when he when he takes the reins, he's the man, and everybody knows he's the man. And he's delivered and produced, uh, you know. And but his competitive nature, uh, his love for the game, um, but he's tough and that two hundred and twenty pound or two hundred twenty five pound frame of his that you think at 6'3", maybe a little bit, you know, a little bit, um, I don't want to use the word fragile, but just you just don't know that he's that wiry and that tough Um, what he is. And, and I think, again, it goes back to how competitive he is. And he is going to make somebody a fantastic NFL quarterback. I see him, again, not size wise, but I played against this guy enough to know but didn't seen him enough, but Dak Prescott is kind of what I see Deshaun being, a guy that comes in, he's a football guy, he picks it up well, uh, and and becomes successful early in his career. I I really believe that in in what I've seen, you know, with Deshaun in the last few years.
1: I thought where this was headed was he and I had to do this top 50 players of the past 50 years, and... And he had Cam a lot higher than I did, not because I don't think Cam was awesome, but because you know, he only played one year. I thought you were going to bring Cam's coach into the debate, which just would not have been fair. No, no. <laughs>
2: I, I don't mean to force him into that. I think we we know he and I are on the same <laughs> side of the argument. You're on the wrong side of the argument.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> I can't really defend that right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, Gene, we can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been really interesting and obviously getting into a topic that I don't think most fans generally get to hear about with a coach's life. So we thank you very much for coming on and obviously wish you the best of luck uh, at this next stage in your life. Well,
3: I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. And uh, listen, if uh, if you get bored and need another guy on, just call me at any other time. I'll come back on.
2: All right, Coach. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us.
1: Appreciate it, guys. All right, Bruce, we'll get back to the podcast in a minute. But first, I believe you want to tell us about an exciting sponsor.
2: Stu, for decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of their customers. How dare they, Stu? How dare they? I know, but those days are over. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offer their blades at half the price. Only $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you pay at the drugstore. That's a pretty good deal, Stu.
1: It's a great deal.
2: I know. Harry's razors include everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. What do you love most about shaving with Harry's? Stu, I'll tell you. It's very easy and it's affordable. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shaves for free. You heard that right, just cover shipping when you sign up. Plus, as a special offer to fans of the Audible, go to harrys.com right now, enter code Audible at checkout to get a post-shave bomb also for
1: free. That's harrys.com audible that was an interesting conversation of course with gene and uh obviously most of it was about his decision to leave um we did want to get into the nfl quarterbacks with him interesting comparison there uh trubisky with colt mccoy yeah i would think he's
2: a bigger guy than colt mccoy which probably bodes well the difference colt mccoy played a ton of college football whereas as gene just said mr Trubisky really
1: didn't and again, you continue to to have this amazing recall ability that I lack to just know every quarterback in the country's height off the top of your head, which is just astoundingly impressive.
2: That's the second nicest thing you've ever said to me, Stu, and I'll, I'll take it where I can get it.
1: I got more compliments coming, my friend, later in this podcast. But uh, he, there was an interesting a little nugget yesterday. Um, the, the NFL combine invites came out, and uh, Cole Kubulik who we know well um, – SEC analyst, he was the first one I saw on Twitter to list the number of invites per conference. I want to read this to you now. The SEC 66, the ACC 60, the Big 10 51, the Pac-12 47, the Big 12 18. I saw that and it was just like, wow. Now we've seen this trend developing over the last few years where the conference, since they lost, you know, schools and realignment. Uh, they have been seeing their recruiting rankings go down and their NFL exports go down, but holy cow, for it to be that big a gap from the fourth power conference to the fifth one, where they're literally averaging less than two combine in- invites per school. And I would also add, this is the same exact amount that one of the group of five conferences had the American. Uh, what does that tell you about what's going on with big 12 football?
2: You know, it it tells you that there is a talent gap. Now, look, sometimes some of these numbers can get skewed where you'd see maybe there's a lot of underclassmen, maybe they're, you know, coming up. But there shouldn't be this big of a gap to the fact of, and I looked it up, the SEC is sending almost as many defensive linemen to the combine as the entire Big 12. They're sending 16 D linemen. As you mentioned, the Big 12 only has 18 and one of the big factors here is one of the two real glamour programs in the Big 12 is Texas. So here's this. So Temple in the AAC is sending four players to the NFL Combine. You want to guess how many players Texas has sent combined in the last three years to the NFL Combine?
1: The past three years of Combines, Texas has not sent more than four?
2: Texas has sent six. They've sent two in the, in the last two years total. Man, that's bad. And maybe I want to use this as a transition. So, you know, as you alluded to at the top of the podcast, I spent signing day at LSU. And one of the big areas where they had a lot of success was in the state of Texas. They signed three of the top six rated players in the entire state. And when you see, you know, the University of Texas, and now there's a coaching transition there with, you know, obviously going from Charlie Strong to Tom Herman But to see how poorly uh, those schools seem to be doing, and I say seem to because it's, you know, the recruiting rankings, you you know, it's not the gospel. But still, there was only one school in the entire state, the entire Big 12 that had a top 25 class, and that was Oklahoma. Everything else, including programs like, you know, Oklahoma State, which we think is going to be a top 10 team next year, was nowhere near it. And that should be a big concern if you're a Big 12
1: fan. So let's rewind a little bit. I mean, this should not be a big mystery. I think maybe during realignment madness, it got glossed over a little bit. But you lose Texas A&M, which is a big name program in you know one of the most talent, if not the most talent fertile states in America. You By the lo- way,
2: Texas A&M sent almost as many, has spent half as many players to the combine this year as the Big 12 is sending. They're sending there nine. There you
1: go. You lose Nebraska, one of the most, you know, storied, traditional programs. Maybe they're not doing as great right now, but certainly a program that's going to send people to the NFL. You lose Missouri, who is down right now but had a lot of success right after that move to the SEC and obviously has also sent a lot of players to the NFL. And you lose Colorado, who, frankly, probably did not Im- impact those numbers a whole lot. And who did you replace them with? West Virginia, I believe. Did, aren't they putting the most out this yeah, year? Yeah, they had five. Yeah. yeah, so... West Virginia doing its part, but but you know you're you're then taking a, a TCU, and then that's it. You got ten instead of twelve, so I, it's not entirely surprising the numbers will be down. But for it them to be, be this, far this far down, I think is really first and foremost a reflection of what's happened at Texas. You know?
2: Hey, also on the combine, one guy who talent wise would have been there but is not invited is is uh, Joe Mixon from Oklahoma.
1: Right. But that wouldn't, that would, I mean, then your number would be at 19. That 19 be that no, that's bit. not what I was going
2: with this. To me, it is an awful look from the NFL that they, you know, I don't know if they can spin it as some kind of punishment that they're not sending players with these domestic violence histories to the combine. You know, having covered the combine the last, you know, five years or so, that is the one time when these guys do get asked about it by the media, often on a big stage. And so it becomes a story again. And the way that the NFL, it's almost like it won't become headline in Indianapolis is these guys won't be there to answer those questions.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, I got to be honest. I had not thought about that. So you, you're you saying, okay, I, I guess I just hadn't been paying that close attention to it. When, when I saw that, that they weren't allowing those kind of players to come to the combine, the players with those... Um, baggage. Ba- baggage. But what not there a specific, it's if you've been convicted of a violent crime, right? Or is it yeah, any anything?
2: Right. But when we're talking about these, again, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the worst of the worst, you know, like what we're talking about. I mean, the case of Manti Teo, you know, was the catfishing story.
1: Right. But what I'm saying is, I guess I naively thought that this was driven by Uh, that they don't want these teams to draft these guys, so they're not going to send them to the Combine. And you're saying you think it's more literally about publicity and not wanting the media to write about those stories that week. Correct. I mean, that's where I think a lot of it is rooted in. Well, I'm pretty cynical about the NFL's motives in general, so I'm going to have to say that you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, to me, a really bad look. So what does that mean for Joe Mixon, if— Will he? I assume he's going to still work out at Oklahoma's pro day. Will that be the only chance teams get to see him? Well, I, they can do private workouts. When I mean, you're talking about a first round talent, but are teams going to go out of their way to go to a private workout of a guy with that that big a baggage? I think they will. I don't buy for a second. By the way, the people are saying he's not going to get drafted. Of course, he's going to get drafted. Probably not in the first round, but somebody's going to look at that tape and go, "We got to have this guy." And they're going to talk to Oklahoma's coaches and they're going to tell them that he's a changed man and and that'll be that.
2: Yeah, I mean he's such a good receiver and he's a big physical back. I mean he's got really good feet, but he has a serious amount of baggage and and look, we've talked about this. The Oklahoma fa- staff I think will vouch for him in a big way, but you know, he's what he did was something was something very awful and whoever drafts him has got to own that.
1: Getting back to the original point, you know, the Big 12 did have a lot of underclassmen. They do have a lot of guys coming back. And I think you saw a bowl season, a little bit of a taste of how much better that conference could be this coming season. Uh, I think there's going to be, you know, whether it's Oklahoma State, who I think could be really good, Oklahoma, K-State. I assume Texas will be better, but we've been saying that for a few years. Uh, West Virginia, you know, I think they'll have a lot of good teams. But that doesn't take away from the long, you know, I just still think the longer term trends are very disturbing. I mean, this is a conference that is just not competing in recruiting and talent development with the other Power Five conferences. And and that's going to, you know, how do you, so many of these schools, so many of these coaches sell, uh, you know, how do you, what's the number one thing that you sell to the four and five star recruits? We can get you to the NFL. And then they're going to see these numbers. And, and I'm sure that the rival coaches from the other conference are going to make sure they see these numbers. And they can't really say that that's the case. So um, I, it's, it's deeply concerning if you're the Big 12 going forward. They're still going to make the money. They're still going to get Power 5 money. But uh, it's going to be harder and harder for them to compete. And frankly, this is why I thought they should have expanded. Um, I know that people will say, well, those schools didn't. None of the schools out there would have increased their TV value enough or whatnot, and that's probably true, but um, there was a direct hit to the Big 12 when Texas a and went to the SEC in terms of Texas, state of Texas recruiting, and so I think you got to find a way to replace that, whether it had been adding uh, USF and trying to get into Florida or adding Cincinnati and trying to get into Ohio. Some people are cynical about that or skeptical. Uh, what, what effect would that have? But, you know, we were just talking the other day about Michigan setting up shop in New Jersey. You know, I definitely think that there's there is a direct correlation between, okay, this state is now a big 10 state or a big 12 state and suddenly recruits are more interested.
2: Yeah, I don't know if I would go as far as you're going, but, you know, you add Houston that would that have helped a little bit? I, I just think that it comes down to they're not recruiting well enough and getting the kinds of players, especially on defense that they need to get. I mean, West Virginia has five, Uh, you know, they were, they've done well, especially with junior college players, which is something, you know, years ago, K state was doing that. But I just feel like that's the area where it's hurting. And, you know, some of this, I think is cyclical with, with Texas being down my guess is, A year from now, or at least two years from now, Texas is going to probably send a half dozen guys to the combine because that's how well Charlie Strong recruited.
1: It's definitely about Texas being down because, as you know, the brand name programs always dominate in recruiting, right? So, I mean, it's just not realistic that Texas Tech or uh, TCU are going to suddenly start recruiting top 10 classes. It's really on Oklahoma and Texas to do that. And, again, that's where they suffer from having lost A&M in Nebraska. They really only have two of those you know, traditional brand name programs that, you know, could start showing up in the top five or the top 10 of the Rivals.com rankings every year. I don't think there's any other school in that conference that's going to start doing that. doesn't mean they can't get good players. Should be getting better players than they are now, I guess. But, you know, I think they're at a real disadvantage in recruiting in that Big Ten has Ohio State, Michigan, but also Penn State and Nebraska. Like, they don't have, they only have two of those in the Big 12 right now. And
2: I think you're giving Nebraska a little more Weight than I would have expected you to, it's not like Nebraska is in a state that's a heavy you know recruiting hotbed It's amazing
1: not like- that anybody from Nebraska even still listens to this podcast the way you talk about them Does, am I
2: wrong on that point?
1: No they're not the national recruiting power that they once were um but my point is I mean okay, if you if you throw them out Penn state is a third one of those uh the s e c has many so you know, in the in the Big Twelve, you're talking about those two schools, Oklahoma and Texas, and one of them has been mediocre for seven years now. So that brings down the talent level of the entire conference. Speaking of recruiting, uh, your story just went up. We we kind of uh, cryptically alluded to it when you were MIA on signing day. Meat market 2.0. You spent signing day signing day week at LSU with Coach O. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah. So as you said, meat market 2.0, it's, it's 10 years since I, I wrote meat market and I figured this would be an interesting, you know, project to jump into. So people have asked me a lot, probably more than any other thing I've ever worked on. You know, would you ever do a sequel to that? And I didn't, you know, a, I didn't think that I would get the access. i also didn't think I would have the, uh, the energy to sit there and, and do that for a full year or anything like that. But I wanted to kind of get a sense of it and see where how much he's changed and how much his situation has changed. So that's how it came about, um, you know. And it was it was an eye opener from from the, basically the moment you walk in their facility compared to what I remember at Ole Miss um, in terms of the caliber athletes. They were recruiting some good athletes and some a few great ones at Ole Miss, but you know, it's just it was a different kind of kid that they can get in with at LSU compared to what they could get in at Ole Miss. And so to see that every step of the way, but it was still a lot of drama. Um, you know, they got when I, for the three days to signing day, you know, they had a half dozen to to 10 guys who were, they were kind of like really up in the air about and to watch how those, how some of the, the assistants kind of ride this emotional roller coaster it's pretty riveting to, to, be, to be in the middle of.
1: Sure. So I said I had compliments waiting for you. I think this story is fantastic. I think everybody should read it. You just don't see this deep a dive into the behind the scenes of a recruiting uh, operation as you will in this article. I mean, pretty much um, I, it seems like almost every assistant is mentioned in here. Uh, and then some of the you know non-assistant coach personnel, uh, They is that unusual to have a guy whose title is general manager?
2: It is now that kid. It's funny. I am actually a kid. He's thirty one. Um, Austin Thomas and USC and Tennessee. Tennessee fans may remember him. I mean, his story is interesting. But what what jumps out at me is when I when I worked on Meat Market, O'Gron's right hand man was a guy named Kent McLeod. He is one of the smartest people I've ever you know been you know met through college football. He's now on the Duke staff. He's a Cutcliffe guy. Um, he was the in-house recruiting coordinator. Now, he may have had a different title, but that was kind of what Kent did. His recall and everything was was re- remarkable. Kent looked like a golfer. You know, he had a math degree. He wasn't a college football player. Austin Thomas reminds me a lot of Kent in a lot of ways. You know, he's he's son of an orthopedic surgeon, grew up wanting to be, you know, Kent, I think, wanted to be an NFL scout. Austin wants to be an NFL GM. And he, they got thrust into, into, opportunity to really have a lot more um a lot more responsibility than probably most people would have ever thought and they respond well now that Austin ends up because their their defensive line coach Pete Jenkins is 75 and and they were able to manage it where because he couldn't travel for recruiting Austin ends up recruiting and he ends up going back to his home state and landing a five-star defensive back who was already there and And the top inside linebacker in the country, Jacob Phillips, who they flipped from Oklahoma. So, you know, you kind of see how, you know, sometimes how smart some of these guys are and how uh, I think a lot of them, in the case of Austin, I think grew up out of the out of the rivals slash 247 scout dot com kind of world.
1: You know, I read that and it was interesting because this is something I've talked about and written about where I feel like. Recruiting – running a college program in general, but recruiting in particular is not – the skill set needed to coach defensive backs technique is not the same as the skill set to be this – to organize this massive operation where you're recruiting hundreds of kids and sending assistance on the road and whatnot. And so I like it. I like that he has this guy. I think every program in the country should have one. You don't have to have played college football. You've got to be – like his title says, you've got to be the general manager – of the football program. Now, I think there should be an actual GM that's above the coach, but that doesn't seem realistic. So in the meantime, yeah, I think it's great to have somebody like this. Well, one thing that I, you know, as you're saying, it kind of, it didn't dawn on me until right about
2: now. You know, one of the the things you, you, you sometimes hear in the media is, oh, did you play in the NFL? Did you play college football? Like, I think Ogeron leans on Austin Thomas about as much as he does anybody he works with as a recruiter. I'm not saying... You know, you got Dave Aranda there who's, a, you know, who was a huge recruit for him and obviously Matt Canada. But in terms of the recruiting aspect, well, Austin Thomas, much like Kent McLeod, it wasn't like they were former SEC linebackers. You know, they learned how to evaluate. I remember, you know, Kent told me he learned from a, a guy named Rick Petrie, who was a like a, law, a career defensive line coach who showed him. And I think Austin learned from Frank Wilson and he learned from T. Martin and he learned obviously from, from, from Ogeron. And, and some other guys he worked with. But I think it's interesting where these guys in the middle of football, as they are, you know, can really do rely on some of these guys who have very different backgrounds than they do and different perspectives and how it all kind of comes together. So it was it was fun to work on. I think I have more, uh, you know, I probably have more about this meat market 2.0 I could probably get into at a later date. But I was excited about the story and about the access I was able to get.
1: You know, Paul Meyerberg from USA Today had a story close to signing day at Northwestern. A group of students started basically an analytics, um, some analytics software for recruiting, where you're plugging in all the information from all the recruiting sites. That basically is a formula that tells you the likelihood of a guy actually choosing your school based on you know all the factors that go into it, Um, and that Northwestern program now uses it. And it helps you be more efficient in terms of like not wasting your time on guys that you really don't have no chance at. And again, those are college students that don't play college football. So uh, I think you're seeing the evolution of this into the massive enterprise that it is.
2: It's crazy too, because it's, it's a little bit like it is relationships. It's like the girl you like, you don't call too much cause you don't want to scare her off or whatever. It like, you know, who's, who you talking to, who's talking to you, who's, who's calling back, I mean, to watch these conversations play out in real time, you know, Marvin Wilson, who ended up at FSU, was the guy they thought was probably the top player in the country, you know, and they had a good relationship with the mother and the brother and felt like they had a good relationship with Marvin. But at one point, Marvin says, hey, just give me some space. And I don't think I remember they had probably not talked to him for like, you know, three days and. They, you know, that sometimes recruits say that and they you know, they're they're comfortable with you and you end up they end up signing with you on Wednesday. I think that's what happened with a, another linebacker they got.
1: I cannot imagine having spent a year calling, direct messaging, texting, getting on a plane and visiting the kid's home, um, in some cases multiple times going out to their high school, you know, a year of this in pursuit of one kid only to have him only to have to watch on television to see if he's gonna put on your baseball cap. And then he doesn't. I just, that's got to be, I can't even imagine the, I, I guess these guys are used to it and they just move on. But it seems like an incredible investment of time to end up not landing the kid.
2: Yeah. And as like, we talked about this when I was in Baton Rouge, you know, he remembered my time around Ole Miss. He was like, you know, they, they stressed and, and he was worn out for Joe McKnight. You know, ESPN had the top player in the country and it was like. The year before, they signed a three-star guy named Dexter McCluster who actually turned out to be a better player in college than Joe ever was. You know, it's like you can make yourself crazy over these five-star guys and you don't know, you know, you could look at the board and go, okay, who do you think is going to be, you know, the sleeper in this class? Who do you think is going to be that? And you just never know. I mean, the best player Ed Ogeron probably ever coached at Ole Miss was a Tennessee kid who Tennessee never – didn't want. That was Patrick Willis. You know, it just – it's weird how that stuff kind of can work out that way.
1: I still can't believe the Joe McKnight tragedy. Like when you said his name, it just kind of like my heart fluttered for a second because it's just so awful. You know, like they just indicted the guy for murder. Um, you know, this is a guy we all watched in at USC. And, and frankly, I felt like I knew about it even before that because of meat market. So, um, yeah, sorry. Just that hit me for a second. Um, oh, one other thing from your story I wanted to note. Since I'm the one always defending recruiting rankings, you're always the one shitting on them. Uh, I feel like I got (laughs) perspective. I feel like I got a little bit of validation from the fact that from the scene where they're starting to talk about 2018 recruits and they literally have the 247 sports rankings up on a board.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the same thing you would have on your computer if you call up 247 sports and like their Louisiana rankings and then projected it on the screen. I mean, that was and that's not their rankings. But that was kind of the de facto checklist of, hey, what do we know about this kid? What do we know about that kid?
1: And has that has that changed since Ole Miss? Like, did they use those rankings at all in in ten years ago? At all? To my best recollection, back
2: then, and that was two thousand and six, it was okay. We they know who was a four star, who was a five star, but they also. You know that I, I remember they got bonuses by how high their recruiting class or how many you know whatever they signed, um. But as it relates to this now, again, I don't think they take the rankings as as gospel, but I think they use it as a as a way to to cross check.
1: Yeah, you have to because your fans would be uh, furious if there's a four star in your state that you're not even recruiting.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and have it towards that end, I mean, I knew this going before signing it. It was. There's a couple of kids and this goes for the 2018s. Like there's there's one kid you why they watch film on him and they think he's awesome and then there's another one where it's like why is this kid so why are all these other schools recruiting him? And to, you know, this isn't in my story but I probably would be in something bigger. Uh, you know, remember that story about the Alabama recruit who ends up, you know, he commits on Bleacher Report and then he gets great green gray-shirted? Yeah. So at one point, they get a call from somebody close to that kid about, are they interested? They put the film in of him they have, and his film isn't very impressive. And I remember Ogeron said, you know, I watched this kid in the – I think it was the Army All-American, one of the high school All-American games. it was like, this looked like a different kid than what we have on film. And he was like, he's he's a lot better than what we thought. But, you know, I still – when they looked at it, I was like, OK, is he good enough for us to jump in and change what we think? I mean, again, this comes back to – He's not at Ole Miss where, you know, you take the kid who's like got some big offers as opposed to now. It's like we could save this scholarship because we're at LSU. We probably will get a better kid next year uh, is, is kind of the attitude on some of these things.
1: So, yeah, go to FoxSports.com and read that story. Go to Bruce's Twitter account if you uh, need to see the find the link. And um, next episode, we'll be answering your emails. So send them to the Audible pod. At gmail.com. I also assume, Bruce, that at some point we will have an hour-long discussion about the rise of Northwestern basketball. Maybe that will be next episode as well uh, after that triumphant win at Wisconsin last week. I
2: watched the end of that. I, I didn't realize it was live on Big Ten Network. It was one of the few things that was on at that point in the day.
1: I got to tell you, that was surreal to watch. Like, that is not a game that Northwestern basketball would have won at any point in the 23 years since that I first you know, became uh, associated with that school without their leading scorer to go down the road and beat a top 10 team and kind of do it with swagger. This really is a new day, my friend. And uh, it's all signs lead to the fact that it's going to end up with a very happy Selection Sunday. So we'll get into that on the next podcast.
2: All right. That's one way to tease it still.
1: And uh, as always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll see you next time.